Reducing Crime is a podcast featuring influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. As police chief, Carmen Best led the Seattle Police Department through the turbulence of the George Floyd protests and the creation of the CHOP and then CHAZ Capitol Hill protest areas before resigning in August 2020 when the City Council planned major cuts to policing. We talk about all of that and more in this episode. Hi, I'm Jerry Ratcliffe. Okay, before we get to Carmen, guest themes. In the last episode, the guest theme was from SWAT, a short-lived cop series from the 1970s that had two mediocre seasons before being thankfully cancelled. Look, just go and watch the opening credits to SWAT on YouTube and you're going to see what I mean. Alright, maybe with the right recreational chemicals it could almost be good, uh, but no. The guest theme for this episode that you just heard is from the US version of an acclaimed Danish police series. From 2011 to 2014, it featured four seasons of moody acting, damp weather and sweaters. Lots of sweaters. If you haven't figured it out yet, I'll reveal the name of the series next episode. The damp weather and sweaters are a result of the series being set in Seattle. That is, for me, a surprisingly nuanced segue into my guest for this episode, Carmen Best. Carmen Best served with the Seattle Police Department for 28 years, rising through the ranks to take over as chief in August 2018. She led the department through the turbulence of the George Floyd protests, culminating in the more than three-week occupation of the Capitol Hill neighborhood in what became the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. Best resigned in protest when Seattle City Council voted to downsize the department by about 100 police officers. A U.S. Army veteran and graduate of Western Illinois University and Northeastern University, Best was the first African-American woman to lead the Seattle Police Department. Having filled many policing roles, as chief she focused on diversity hiring and community engagement. Her professional education includes courses with the FBI National Executive Institute, the FBI National Academy, and the Major City Chiefs Association Police Executive Leadership Institute. Carmen's currently an NBC News and MSNBC contributor and a law enforcement analyst for NBC's Seattle affiliate. We chatted over lunch accompanied by Chris Fisher, Executive Director of Strategic Initiatives for the Seattle Department. Carmen and I discussed the public perception of police-involved shootings, never-ending consent decrees, her departure from the chief's job, the challenges faced by black women police chiefs, the closure of the East Precinct Station, and the future of reform in community policing. We met at Seattle's Blue Water Bistro, a waterfront spot with a great view of Lake Washington. We were a little close to the kitchen, so I apologise for some of the background noise, but look, the place is popular. I recommend the Thai wings and blue cheese salad. Tell them I sent you. But you've pretty much done every job in Seattle, <laughs> haven't you? Not every, but quite a few. They haven't got me in a scuba gear yet. <laughs> <laughs> we have the street tacos. Okay, He's having the tacos, yeah. Oh my goodness, look at that. Blue cheese salad. Thank you. What was the best job? People always ask that, like, what was your best job? No, thank you. Well, the fun assignments were being, believe it or not, being a decoy prostitute was a lot of fun. <laughs> that was hilarious. Yeah, that's another job I yeah. could ever get. Yeah. <laughs> You'd be surprised. Yeah, yeah, uh, I loved any job where I could work with community. So when I was in the community police team, or when I was the lieutenant on the, for the community police team. I like, you know, going to the meetings, hearing what people are concerned about, trying to problem solve, you know. It's an interesting place we're in in policing now, isn't it? I feel like every day it seems like you hit a new low in the publicity. 
we had Derek Chauvin trial, and then there was Dante Wright, and then there was uh, the kid is out of camera's laughing, the Alex something in Chicago, Andrew Johnson, and another. I mean, it was like every the cadence every day or day or two days. There's one other controversial thing, and people don't recognize, you know, don't consider it's a big country with a lot of people. I'm not trying to minimize these things, but they're going to happen, right? And that when they get publicized, and everybody in the whole nation sees them around the world, and it just seems like it's endless. Yes, it and does. And it's going to keep happening because, as you say, I mean, the, the Bureau of Justice Statistics estimate 75 million police community contacts a year, and I think they sorely underestimate that. Yeah. So if you're looking at north of 100 million in the most heavily armed civilian population in the world, a certain percentage of those are going to go wrong. Yeah. It's yeah. just the nature of human interaction. Reason, right? Yeah. Right? But now we video everything, we're going to see all of them. Yeah. And I think, I think you're right. I think people have got to understand it's a big country with a lot going on. While that's true, that will not resonate well with folks. <laughs> you, no. know, you know what I mean? If, you, if your family member was one of those family members, it's like they don't want to hear, well, the scalability and those types of things. But that is the truth of the matter, right? And I'm not trying to minimize it either. I know you're not, me either. But I just knowing the perception will be, it's just hard right now to say something like that. Do you think that this is changing the nature of policing in America? I think it might. I think it has the potential to change it. Because I, we've been on this road before with Rodney King, for example, you would have thought, this is it, we're going to have change. And then, you know, we had Ferguson, all the riots, all of the demonstrations, this is it, we're going to have substantive change. You know, Breonna Taylor, Philando Castile, I mean, we can name all the different things that were pretty dramatic, highly publicized, a lot of attention and a lot of noise. And then eventually, you know, things settle down a bit. And when you actually start looking at what significantly changed, sometimes not so much. I will say the Department of Justice doing the consent decrees gave their um, hope that there was some you know, additional oversight that could ensure agencies were operating you know, fairly. Do you think that helped here? I absolutely do. I think it helped, but I think it's run its course. I mean, that was 2011, if I remember correctly. I was still a lieutenant. I have had a whole career. Since then, I've worked in gangs, narcotics, robbery, chief of investigations, deputy chief, yeah, chief of police, and retired. And they're still here. I think it's on its course. So these things should have a time limit. Absolutely, they should. And yet, all of that, it doesn't feel like that you had the opportunity when you were chief to reap the rewards of all of that. From an outside perspective, they kind of felt that you had a brief honeymoon, and then it was... Okay, we're going to just sink you like everybody else. <laughs> it felt like that to me, too. And, and it wasn't even a brief honeymoon. I mean, I had that. It was a lot of stress, you know, getting into the applicant pool to be the chief. I had been here working and doing the job for months, and then I didn't make the top three. Uh, but that just seemed absolutely ridiculous to me. So I do think there was probably some political maneuvering somewhere to... Um, not have me in that candidate pool for the very reasons that I got put back in it because there was just a lot of uh, community support for me. That guy kind of strikes me as a, an early indication of um, some naivety on the part of the city council, right? Or somebody, right? Or somebody. On, on this case, I mean, there were so many different folks who were involved. I think there were 40 members of, on part. I'm sure Machiavelli could have written something about <laughs> selections for police chief and how that works, right? There's yeah. a whole book in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The follow-on to the prince is the police chief, right? Yeah, it was really something. And it all turned out wonderfully. <laughs> Pieces 
pieces of it did. Pieces of it did. It really did. I got a lot of pleasure from the job. And uh, the challenges were also opportunities in many ways to do different things, to try things out, to create and build a wonderful team of people to work around me. But after the George Floyd demonstrations and then, you know, right into the chaz and the chop, it became really quite, quite a challenge. Even then, though, something I was up for, but when it talked about, you know, like literally, you know, the headlines were they're going to reduce the budget by 50%, lay off 50% of the officers, you know, the politics just became untenable. The conversations, the meetings were occurring. I certainly wasn't invited to them. I wasn't a part of that conversation. I can imagine for the people that supported you, kind of devastating to see the lack of support that came from the city council and your way. I think think a lot of them were quite upset about it, to be honest with you. One of the interesting perspectives from from me is, you know, obviously, probably my accent, I'm not from South Philly, right? (laughs) (laughs) And coming as an immigrant to the country, one of the things that you understand quickly is that you'll never understand how America deals with race, right? Right. Basically, you know, I'm so white, even speed cameras don't give me a ticket. (laughs) So I come into this trying to understand how this works, and I think, well, if anywhere's got this squared away, it's probably Seattle post-George Floyd, because, you know, you're kind of a a unicorn, a black female police chief. If there's anybody who can help navigate a city through something like post-George Floyd, it would be you and, you know, Daniel Outlaw. We have a struggle. Actually, the black women in particular have a harder time than other chiefs. How the hell did that happen? It's structure, it's perceptions, all of those things. But I absolutely feel that way. But like, I'm looking at this saying, these are highly competent people, intelligent, well-versed, understand policy, uh, practices, procedures, accountability, reform, and certainly, um, you know, the difficult political situations that you know you have to address as a police chief. And I feel like the, the, the black women in particular, all chiefs have dealt with, with, you know, across the board, but I, I certainly feel like all the ones that I knew, which is only a handful, I think Danielle, you'll talk to her, and you'll, yeah. I know, and she'll talk about her challenges. They're pretty significant. Sandra Dick Brown has retired now yeah. with uh, you know a lot of challenges that she was dealing with at the end there, Renee Hall. So there's a little bit of that. You yeah. know? And what's, the, the real thing is you don't know. I mean, I feel like that every day. You don't know if a person just doesn't like Carmen Best because our personalities is clashing. You don't right. even like me no matter what. Or if there's some other reason, you know, and you just, and that's always, that's the difference for most folks. People don't like me. It's fairly obvious they just don't like me. <laughs> there's nothing more complicated than that. And there's a very, very large group of people in that category, yeah. right? Well, you make it so easy. <laughs> <laughs> You've met me. Damn it. I'm kidding, but so you just, you don't have those I thoughts of like, is this a sexism right. thing or racism thing? What What's yep. going on here? And sometimes, you know, it could be any of the above or none of the above or all of the above, right? And, and the, that's what makes it a little more tricky when you're trying to maneuver through things. But you put on the uniform. All bets are off. Yeah, a game yeah. changer. In fact, I was speaking at an event about a week or so ago, and there were a number of people who wrote in. Uh, I was told younger uh, people that writing in that didn't want me there because they said, well, once a cop, always a cop. You know, she could be detrimental to, you know, African-American men. And it was so insulting. I have 14 aunts and uncles and dozens of cousins and nephews. My nephew lives with me. So, you know, African-American men are a part of my daily right. life. So the, the idea that my presence or my speaking could be detrimental to them is ridiculous. 
but they're not seeing me. They don't see Carmen Best. They don't know the trials, tribulations, my history, anything. They just see the cop, right? And that's it. And because of their own bias, well, cops are all bad, and she was a cop, and she's part of the problem. And so, so you get excluded from the conversation. Yeah. And this makes me wonder, in, in the, for more progressive cities, which Seattle definitely is, is there anybody who could be progressive enough? You just had an impossible task because you should fit perfectly for help negotiating the city through this. You strong ties with the community, being minority, being black, being a woman, perfect for having that kind of level of empathy and connectivity. But it's, it's just like they steamrolled across the whole process. All of that. Yeah, well, they had their own agenda there. And it's certainly given the option of like supporting this one woman out there or getting into policing altogether, they're trying to impact policing altogether. And I think there's, there's just so many complexities about why that happens. And it wasn't everybody. There were a, a, tons of people who were completely supportive and really did not want me to leave. I think the ministers threw a press conference, <laughs> to, to my surprise. Uh, uh, but there were those groups that really just wanted to see wholesale change. And I was just part of uh, the results of that happening. You know, I, I just had to look up a quote. Martin Casti, the NPR correspondent that covers policing, was writing about you and said, you know, being a police chief in 2020 is precarious. That's kind of an understatement, <laughs> really, isn't it? Yeah, precarious is one way you could describe it, but it, I mean, you know, it's really challenging. It would have stuck with it, but the idea of having that many officers laid off, particularly officers, you know, it's going to be our women, our people of color. You you recruited a lot of minority and women candidates. Yes, well, and they were your youngest officers, which is right. similar in many police departments, right? Of course, me personally, I did try, but it was the organization course, that yeah. did, did the whole thing. And they did a stellar job. It was one of our goals to really try to have our department more reflect the community that we were serving. And so they went back to 50%. That meant uh, people who had been here for up to 10 years would be gone. And all that was going to be left was the least diverse right. department, right? And honestly, how could probably I... probably the least adaptable to change as well. Yes. And how could I, you know, as you said, the unicorn, African woman, woman police chief, my legacy be that the, the women and the blacks and minorities were gone. And whether it's my doing or not, that is part of your legacy of your tenure. And I was not going to have that. And, you know, just the way that the council was sort of dismissive of me, because now it's contentious. They were more concerned about politics and public safety, for sure. Right. And, and now the, the tension is there. And no way was I backing off the fact that their decisions were reckless. They were not being thoughtful. They were going to, you know, really uh, increase crime and increase detriment to the people in the city. How do you go tell a mother, I'm sorry, your, your son got killed. We can't do much about it because over in this corner, we're playing politics with the budget. Yeah, well, I wasn't going to do it, right? It wasn't, gonna, it wasn't the place for me. You know, in American politics, there's no place for you with all these principles that you've got, right? <laughs> yeah, just being true to yourself. You know, I didn't want the department to suffer because the leader is now embroiled in this tit for tat back and forth with the council. They really just did not do their job and they were quite awful. I mean, and that's just, that's just the truth of the matter because the, the politics of the day were dictating their actions much more so than taking care of the community and the people they were supposed to be serving. With the narrative we were trying to create about engaging, working with community members, bringing in people of color, actually being very open to if we can shift resources, if we can bring others in to, do, to answer some of these calls for service, I think everyone's open to that. Things yeah. evolve.
I think progressive, evidence-based people are, you know, if this works out better for the community and everybody involved, yep. I'm all for it. Yep. That's what you join the job for, is for public safety, however we achieve it, right? That's exactly right. We're all in. But, you know, we have to be pragmatic and practical. Even uh, a large change means you scale up to that change, you review things, you see what works, what doesn't work, maybe pilot something, you know, in a reasonable fashion so you can make sure that you get it right. And you don't inadvertently make things worse. That's right, because the risk is too high, too great, right? And so you know, I spent a lot of nights thinking that through uh, and talking to others about that very issue. And just something in me was not gonna allow me to stick around if that was gonna be the way they go. And by the way, here we are, Adrian Diaz doing a great job as chief, but you know, look what he's gotta work through. They lost, I think, 66 people since the beginning of the year. The lowest numbers ever, and that is squarely at the feet of that city council for creating such an um, adversarial and unpleasant environment that they're not able to move it forward. There's a chunk of research, and I've said in the past, that it doesn't matter how many cops you have, it's how you use them. But after a while, when you start to really decimate numbers, no, it actually does matter you have to how have many some. you have. Yeah. <laughs> or at least have somebody there to do the work. I mean, it's like there weren't any cops, and I haven't seen where they brought anybody else in to do all these grand ideas of right. we're going to bring in all the, uh, the social workers. Okay, well, here we are. What day is today? It's uh, May 3rd. I'm looking around, where are they? Have they hired them? Have they trained them? Have they brought them on? Are they answering calls? Are they showing up? I mean, you, you guys have lived through, you really lived through some formative moments in sure. 21st century American policing. Oh, yeah. You know, other than the battle for Seattle, what was that, 20 something years ago? Seattle keeps setting the mark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah the WTO that, and all that. Yeah. yeah, the WTO back 20 something, 20 years 1989, ago. 1989, yeah. And now suddenly this. You've been front and center the whole damn thing. And yeah, when WTO, I was, I was a public information officer during that time frame. Just a crazy time, you know. And so I think there were a lot of lessons learned. And so we felt really good. Like, we've learned how to handle demonstrations. We've learned how to deal. We've had Mayday. We've had M30. We've got this down. And then when the George Floyd protests came, you know, those tactics that had been tried and true that we'd worked on so diligently for, like, almost two decades really weren't working at... Yeah, obviously, tear gas does, you know, does disperse the crowd like it was supposed to, but the community feedback on it was so very strong about it and around it. And I was trying to think, well, why is it so different? But, you know, things change, people evolve, we had more people out there, mm -hmm. more people who were average, you know, citizens out there, community members out there protesting and whatnot. I mean, thousands, way more than we'd ever had before. Yeah. And in the midst of that, you know, people who were bent on doing criminal activity and throwing yeah. rocks and bottles, you know. And so we did have to make those adjustments to disperse the crowd. And the other thing that I found very curious during that time frame was that the destructive behavior, for whatever reason, I'm not sure if there was a political reason or otherwise, did not get the level of uh, publicity or media right. attention as, you know, I would read stories about, you know, the peaceful protests. I go, well, part of it was peaceful. But I was standing like 20 feet away from a hail of rocks, you know, <laughs> and I was looking right at them, come hail down, like feet from me, I was behind a telephone pole. And then you read the media and find that they're pretty much gaslighting you. Yeah, it never happened. Yeah, it's like, what? No, the, it was just a peaceful protest and the police just, you know, unleashed this, you know, tear gas and pepper spray and, you know, and, and it just wasn't true. I mean, I know we did do it and we obviously did it for reasons and maybe in hindsight, maybe some of those times we could have 
you know, waited longer or did something differently. Obviously, when you look back at things, you have more clarity. But the fact of the matter is it did happen, and there were reasons. It wasn't arbitrary. Uh, but certainly we were trying to look as non-threatening as possible, you know, not maybe not have this riot shields up. But, you know, once we know we're going to be getting rocks and bottles thrown at us, I have a responsibility as a chief to make sure people have protective gear. We can't just leave them out there with a the soft hat and, you know, rocks are being thrown or whatever. There's actually a previous episode of this podcast. I interviewed Ed McGuire, who is uh, an academic but an expert in the area of protest policing. Oh, really? You know, he was saying the good thing to do is to go out with soft gear when things are peaceful. But once you start receiving airmail... You know, you get a showering of rocks and stuff being thrown at you. Cycle those guys out and come in with right. protective gear because it's like you know, we understand public perception, but you also have a, an obligation to protect people who have just come to, to work. work. That's it, exactly it's their job. It. They come to work and they should have the right equipment to protect them during that job. And you have such liability. I mean, the department even got sued for one officer who had a helmet on, but it was the older version mm-hmm. of the helmet that, to protect them. And that. So knowing all of this... Even if I didn't know all that, I just wouldn't, you know, not send people out there unprotected. That's just reckless and not the right thing to do, yeah. right? So. Well, it comes with a with us, well, Oh, right. I picked the wrong thing. I'm just looking like a complete heathen the way I'm eating. Would you like one? They're very good. Chris, you should have one. I have one. I am. Thank you. And then, you know, we called in the National Guard, you know, to help augment our resources. Those kids to me were just kids. I mm-hmm. felt very, or my children were probably older than some of those kids that were out there. You know, they're in their early 20s, you know, 23-year-olds, and, and they're out there, they're, they're, they're going to be their civic duty, they're going to be guards persons, and here they are standing on the line, and these folks are just saying, some of the people in the crowd were saying, you know, really awful things about their families, their parents, their mother, their children, you know. To the point that we started rotating officers off the front line at a, at a faster cadence because nobody should have to stand there and listen to that. But we, I, I just was thinking we have a responsibility to take care of the people who suit up to come to work. Some of the negative things that were happening, you know, in terms of some of the crowd behavior, oh. people were embedded in the crowd, they were acting bad, just were not, nobody was talking about it. No. Yeah, and, I, and my perspective. And so, and so the police response looks disproportionate. It does, and, and and on occasion it was. On occasion, people did things, and you'll, they'll get disciplined for it when it comes. When you know, as we find out, people who may have gone rogue or may have done some things out of policy, we certainly don't say we, that the police response was perfect all the time. That said, there were definitely some challenges with some of the protesters doing things, setting buildings on fire. Really? And I know that there are folks who think that that's just all part of the process, but I will never agree with that. I know small business owners, they struggle very hard, they work hard to keep their businesses open, so all of those things really have an effect on them, you know, they really do. I remember businesses in East London when I was a cop, when the business owners were telling me, you know, when we get broken into, when we get stuff stolen, I think the kids that are doing this just assume that we're insured. But this is a high crime area. We can't afford the insurance for this area. When they when they break in and steal our stuff, it's gone forever. We 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 don't get that back. And I'm sure that's the same for businesses here too. I'm sure they can't all afford insurance. I'm sure it's damn expensive in some areas. Right. Or the insur- or the deductible isn't high enough, you know, for them to. So all of those things combined that you think about when the, when these things are occurring. Again, from outside, I, I don't know if you, how much you appreciate. You probably, I think you do, but you appreciate how the rest of policing was going. Holy shit. Was it the East Precinct? Oh, yeah. And leaving the East Precinct police station, 
Now that wasn't down to you. I've I've read the the media. Yeah, stuff. You, listen, I was quick to say that was not my decision because it wasn't, and I didn't want anybody to think you that worked that there was. originally, didn't you, back in the day? I I worked at that precinct quite a bit of my career. Yeah, so there was a, a confluence of events that really led to that happening. The, the leaving the precinct was a real problem because that was the precipitating factor to the the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, the CHAZ, which at some point turned into the CHOP, you know, but leaving that precinct really, um, no pun intended, sort of triggered that whole thing, that whole uh, set of events. I mean, was it, did the the officers there kind of decide to leave? Because I I would get that completely. I mean, I I was looking at thinking, would would I stay there? Yeah, well, you know, it was a command decision from, you know, uh, and these things happen. I want to preface this by saying, you know, often there's dynamic situations. Sure. Things are happening in the middle. You're in charge and you're making decisions. And somebody, you know, I think people question, why weren't they talking to you about it if you're the chief? And I said, I would have preferred that happen, to be honest with right. you. But also, there's lots of things that happen in the field that are happening right then. And the first call is not to, you know, they're, right. they're trying to deal with what's before them. Then they will get So updated. one of your command staff on the ground kind of said, we've had enough? I think a few of the commanders right. were like, and they were not simply that we had enough, they were thinking, we've been told by the fire department that our building, which has contiguous walls to other buildings, that if it gets set on fire, it's going up quickly, and it's a danger. And we already had the one precinct in Minneapolis had already been burned. And so we were concerned about the building going up. You could lose the police station, but you could have burned down the rest of the block. As well. So we certainly were concerned about all of that. You know, whatever was in the station, sensitive right. material, weapons, other things that are held there, you know, in various areas. So all of that, you know, they were considering what could happen here. And if because the city had really decided, to be honest with you, that we were going to open up those streets. You know, it wasn't our first choice to do as a command staff. I'm just going to be honest here. We did not want to open up the streets. But the mayor's office and others were like, look, there's a skirmish line there, and that's a point of contention. And if you leave people there... So I understood that, but the way the precinct is built is right on the street. So if we open it up... There's no buffer. People can put yeah, hands right, on the building, right, can't yeah, they? Yeah, exactly. Right. So it felt not safe. Once they, the decision was made that we were going to do it, and we took the barricades up, you know, they decided, you know, we're going to get our people out of here. We're going to get our sensitive material out of here. There's the buildings under threat. The FBI had told us that police precincts were under a threat. That came from the FBI, and I, I repeated it. And I had politicians telling me I was making it up. And I was like, I'm not making it up. It came from the FBI. I actually had to get the FBI director on the phone to announce to some of the folks and to the media, like we would just say that just to say it. No, the precinct is at risk. We have an FBI warning. We've got a warning from our fire chief. And plus, our common sense tells us this isn't a good place to be. So you've got local commanders on the, on the ground in the in East mm-hmm. precinct kind of saying, that's it, we got we got to bail. That- and I don't blame them for that decision in the slightest. What were you thinking? You were in headquarters at the time? Yeah, well, that was just one of those days, you know, one of those <laughs> one days of those. where you, where you <laughs> just earned your dollars. Because it was, we had been told and we were, that we were going to lift those barricades and, you know, against our better judgment, we were going to lift the barricades. What, what was the time frame between the barricades being lifting and the guys kind of... Pretty quick. Yeah, I don't, I don't have the exact, but, but less than an hour. Less than an hour. Yeah. Right, the barricades yeah. are off, people are surrounding the building, we're leaving. Yeah, and we're they, they decide right. to leave, yeah. yeah. Around the hour's time or so. My conversation with one of the chiefs who called me and said, hey, the city is looking um, for a evacuation plan in case we have to evacuate the precinct. 
So I said, well, listen, we are not going to evacuate that precinct. We're not going to evacuate the precinct. So cause I wasn't at the precinct at the time, so I didn't see what was happening, boots on the ground. And that was, that was my last word. She hung up. I hung up. And like a couple hours later, it's like, they evacuated the precinct. And I'm like, what happened? So, uh, you know, it just wasn't clear, you know, exactly what transpired. But I think the idea was that the next day, everybody would be, you know, the demonstration would happen. These things usually lasted till two or three or later in the morning. And then once the crowd dissipated, uh, we would start moving equipment and people back into the precinct. But it didn't, that's not what happened, right? right? They took the barricade, they started barricading the same areas that we had barricades, now had barricades from, from others. Isn't that an irony that barricades work? If only the city had listened to you on that, right? <laughs> Yeah, they keep people out, don't right. they? Yeah, because <laughs> we were now we were now on the opposite side of that, and it was such an incredibly you know surreal thing, right? It's like, and we didn't know. So the next day, one of the captains and one of the acting lieutenants facilitate people going back to the precinct, and they're met with armed people who told them, you know, basically, get off our sovereign property. It was really uh, interesting because when it happened, they brought me a copy of the video you know, and showing me what was going on, but we never seen anything like that. Yeah, I don't think anybody's seen anything like it. This well, is... You're right, because I talked to our, our, some of our federal partners who were looking at it saying... Oh, so this is one of these old movies like Assault on Precinct 13, if you remember that old movie, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were like, this yeah... this is for real, yeah, and it's in Seattle. Yeah, we, haven't, we haven't seen anything like it either. I mean, they were, you know, they were really saying, look, we had Occupy, we had coups and takeovers, but not quite what you guys are experiencing yet eclectic groups of people coming in and just taking over a public neighborhood yes. like in that fashion right usually like there's some sort of we're part of the such and such group and we're protesting this that and the other but it really wasn't that we couldn't even figure out the leader like it was even organized it seemed just amorphous just, yeah it just came to be although there were armed people that you know, initially were like don't come in once they really established the ground and we were... It's so difficult to move people once they're embedded. Yes, and they Keep started calling um, for others to come. So the group just started expanding and exploding with, with the population. I got to tell you, though, you know, we were pretty clear. I just thought it was terrible and that we got a real problem and we need to we need to get on this and figure this out quickly. That, hence why we were talking to other agencies. But, you know, the city, the political will was not there to do anything. You know, the parks department's talking to people and they're digging up the park and putting a vegetable garden in there. Seattle Public Utilities is bringing in porta potties for these folks. And I think the mayor was quoted as saying the summer of love. And, and there was no one that I could really turn to and say, does anybody see how bad this is and how this is going to be a problem? But it, it wasn't there. It really wasn't there. It wasn't until a few weeks had gone by we had those murders. Yep. We had a murder. I think it was on June 20th that that murder occurred because it was the one day I had taken off to go see my daughter in California. It was her baby shower. I'm here all the time, seven days a week, you know, always there. But that one time I, I took off to go to my daughter's baby shower, I get a call to call me to say uh, there was a murder Guess in a child. What? Yeah. yeah. It was probably like just before 5 a.m. It was early. And I was like, okay. So I called, you know, the mayor and others to say, hey, we had a murder out there. And then suddenly everybody's like, let's get back. Let's get a plan. Let's figure it out. But I'm like, listen, it's my first grandchild at my daughter's baby shower. We can talk about this and I'll get, you know, Chief Diaz who's filling in. But I'm not missing that. Yeah. I mean, there's no coming back from that. 
So I was on the phone all the way up until we literally drove up to the baby shower place. I turned my phone off, you know, enjoyed my time with our family and all of that. You know, hugs, kisses, got back in the car and was back on the phone the whole time. Yeah, but I'm telling you, the whole time, you know, the officers and the people who were responding to that area knew it was a problem. Right. And we had been saying, look, our response times are up. And we've had rapes, we had robberies, we had assaults. I remember giving a press conference at some time along the way and holding up the reports. Because every time I said something, people would say we were just making it up. I go, no, I have police reports of real victims. <laughs> and well, people you can look at to, to verify these things are happening, right? What I think is, it sounds so typical because I've spoken to a number of police chiefs over the years. Yeah. And it's this whole process of the city creates a problem over a period of weeks, exacerbates the problem, makes it worse. The inevitable happens and then suddenly, can you drop everything about your personal life and fix this right now? And that wasn't going to happen. Yeah. And there was no immediate fix anyway. Because no, it takes time to bring back some sense of order. That's yeah. exactly it. So we were really concerned uh, with planning uh, how we were going to facilitate ending the chop, but do it in a way that wasn't, you know, the people didn't get hurt. You know, I think I was standing up strong for it, but on the inside, I was terrified about you know, this becoming like a mini Waco, you know, like we know people are in there, we know people are armed, we know people, some of the people, you know, their mental state was uh, questionable on a good day. Uh, we'd had a behavioral analyst that sort of gave us their, their perspective about some folks, you know, really now so um, committed to what they were doing in the chop that having them move, it was going to be very difficult to make that happen without them being very resistant. Because if they don't see the problems, they think everything's fine. Yeah, and because this was their 15 minutes of fame. I mean, CNN and Fox and all these international papers are down there every day interviewing people and wandering around the crowd. But meanwhile, crime was going through the roof. Yeah, and particularly that area. I mean, we really needed to do something. And that, as tragic and as sad as having a young person murdered there was, it took that for people to realize, oh, maybe we should be doing something about it. So what's the future there? And I think there's broader lessons beyond just East Precinct, right? Oh yeah, sure. You know, I think all, a lot of this is based, my personal view, a lot of the problems that we're facing are, are based in race and our, the way we approach race and discrimination and our own um, biases that we bring to us in every profession and in every manner and everybody has them. So it's a part of the reality of the world that we live in. But America never seems very good at dealing with these kinds of things. Yeah, it's a struggle, right? It's been a long-term struggle. I think there's been improvement, you know, but definitely a struggle. And so I think we're going to have to address, in my view, you know, the institutions and the race as a whole. Certainly, you know, they look at policing because, you know, they have the ability to, you know, take your life, you know, and, they, and use, you know, lethal force and all those things. So, of course, it stands out more. But I guarantee you, you know, it is, it is detrimental when your teachers are racist, if your bus drivers are racist, if you're male, any of those folks who use race to dictate how they're behaving, that's a problem for us, all of us, yeah. right? And I even, Absolutely. even when you, I have said this before, I could fire the racist cop and have, but that cop doesn't disappear. Now he's your racist or he or she, whatever else they decide to do afterward. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. So we have to deal with the root causes. I think it was Chuck Ramsey who said, even if you can make your police department completely, you know, no, no race issues, none of these issues of bias at all, 
it doesn't matter if everything else around it still has those same issues, right? There are race problems, everything through healthcare and the medical, yes, through government, yes, through education. Right, yeah, right. they're endemic through the right. society. So people call in 911. And is it really a suspicious person or, or are there other... And then they put the police department in a, in a video That's position because right. you can't just turn around and say, yeah, you've just been a racist, we're not going to turn up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know, maybe we will be able to get to that yeah, point. Yeah. Maybe, I don't know, but yeah. Everybody gets like one or two freebies and then after <laughs> a while, if he's just a racist, we're not coming out to you anymore, I don't know. <laughs> I do believe there's a place for consent decrees, time limited, focused on real issues. You know, having some continuity, you know, policies and practices, you know, having a national standard, I think would be incredibly important. Well, yeah. 18,000 police departments just doing all the yeah, doing their own yeah, thing. Yes. But, you know, these are the things that should be consistent across. Like, people should have body-worn camera. Uh, you know, no-knock warrants. You know, do we need those anymore? You know, go away, right? And some agencies do, do them and some agencies don't. I don't think Seattle's done them in almost 20 years. Right. Right? And so the chokehold and... All of those things, just to, across the board, no matter what your zip code is, you should understand that these things, at a minimum, you're going to get from your police department. One of the things I would really love to chat about a little bit is technology and how technology can help enhance you know, the ability to have better public safety. You know, and I know there's a lot of discussions about surveillance and privacy, but I think there's, there's space there to have those discussions but still utilize technology in ways that advance our ability to protect people. So we should be able to use, for example, drones or facial recognition down the line. Did you see the uh, furore in New York about using the small robot that looks a bit like a dog? And they put it into a situation where the officer would have been at significant risk, but everybody was up in arms because it looks like a dog. It was the most crazy discussion I think I've ever seen. Yeah, well, people are, you know, people in America, they care very much about their privacy, uh, when it, especially when it comes to Big Brother or government. I totally get that. So I think that there should be appropriate oversight and mechanisms in place to, that, so people feel more comfortable. But we also know we could do a better job with these enhanced uh, technology uh, advancements. I even saw where it, they, they can show like um, an officer's heart rate uh, and temperature. So they could be going into a situation where they're elevated. Maybe that's a time that they can, you know, physically step back and take Just a have deep, some awareness. Yes, take a deep breath. I'm getting a little, you know, all of those things. They can help us. You're aware that I go to some police departments that are still on Windows 95 and fax machines, right? <laughs> I know that to be true. But there's also these great conferences where they're talking about the innovation and technology. So I'm really hopeful. And I do believe at some point, you know, we'll be able to utilize that better. We're seeing across the country the proactive policing, police officers using their discretion to do pedestrian stops and field investigations and traffic stops. That's all just dropped precipitously. Do you think the public would ever accept those again, or do you think we've moved away from proactive policing for the foreseeable future? Well, I think that there's still going to be some proactive policing. But what does that mean? You know, proactive. I mean, I would expect you if you see a problem to address it. That's part of your job. You know, I've gone up. You know, it's just a social contact. Talk to guys like, hey, what are you doing up here at the school? I've noticed I'm a patrol officer working in this area, and I've seen you and your car up here, but I've never seen a kid. Well, a lot of that seems to be rolling, a lot, especially on the East Coast. I, you know, I mean, I'm speaking to a lot of people that that's all going away. Police officers are just keeping their heads down. They don't want to get in trouble. They don't want to start something that could escalate. Well, I think there's probably an element of that that happens. That when we first had the consent decree, 
our proactive work, you know, it plummeted, right? Because everybody's, you know, feeling that the weight of this thing. They don't want to get jammed up. Yeah. But eventually it comes back up. We were still in the consent decree. It didn't go away. But, you know, it went down, you know, for a time. Then it started moving back up as people started adjusting to, you know, what they were doing and how things were going. And they did do proactive police work. And I think people will always do things proactively. But if it's proactive and it's biased or proactive and bigoted, that's what you don't want. But you do want your officers being proactive. You do want a cop like I was, you know, 30 years ago, almost 30 years ago, seeing somebody that's in the neighborhood every day at the school in the morning and what's up with that. And then I, you know, stop a legitimate stop and I asked him, hey, what are you doing here? It was a conversation. There was no arrest, but I didn't see his car anymore. It's proactive work. Perhaps it goes back to what you started talking about, which is the importance of working with the community. Say, so go to the community and say, we think we would benefit from more proactive work. How do you feel about that? And, you know, there's something to be said for building those relationships with people. All policing is local. So, you know, uh, while people will sometimes have a, a lot of perspectives about what's happening nationally, a lot of people like the neighborhood officer, you know. They like to talk to them and they have them over and they'll have coffee, they'll have coffee with the cop, that kind of a thing. So my belief is and my hope is that we'll continue with that aspect of policing, um, but we'll have some national standards so that people get can expect a certain level of policing that will continue to keep a laser focus on things when they are outside, you know, outside of the norm. If everybody's stopping people and suddenly this person is stopping only a certain type of people, that we'll be much more aware of it and cognizant, tracking, and so that we can ensure that people are behaving in the way we want them to in the field. And so what's next for you? That is a good question. <laughs> well, right now, I'm enjoying what I'm doing now because... What are you, what are you doing well, now? My 27 jobs, but I, I am working for a private security company um, for one of their global accounts. Just talk, And there's a lot of crossover between, you know, securing facilities and buildings and guards and that kind of thing. Also, uh, I have been a contributor for uh, MSNBC and um, CNBC, all the NBCs, right? And I love doing that because it keeps me focused on, you know, what's happening in the field. We also need sensible vo heads and voices out there. Right. Really? Some would disagree, <laughs> but I, I'm probably the most conservative one on the uh, MSNBC, but I do like doing it. <laughs> and co-chairing the Human and Civil Rights Committee with uh, Chief Diaz, that's just a, a labor of love. I love, you know, working on those issues and working with people who care immensely. Uh, we have people on that committee who are law enforcement, retired law enforcement, current, a couple of mayors, people from you know other places, and I find that incredibly rewarding as well. So I, I don't know. I mean, I could be a chief again one day. You know, after that last stint, I probably need a little break, <laughs> a year or two of a break. But then I could see doing that again, maybe. I, I really don't know. Yeah, we'll see. Well, whichever city it would be would, would benefit hugely from having you there. Oh, thank you for saying that. Well, this was a great recommendation for a restaurant. <laughs> so thanks very much. Yeah. This is a Yeah, story. and I love the way you licked your plate. It was great. <laughs> Bugger, that's going to have to stay in now, isn't it? Yeah. Can't, can't take me anywhere. You're a shocker. Carmen Best, you are a shocker. Oh, just, just teasing, yeah. Well, thanks. this is great. Thank thanks you. Thanks so much. All right. That was episode 35 of Reducing Crime, recorded in Seattle in May 2021. New episodes are announced on Twitter at underscore Reducing Crime. Want to use an episode or two for class? Then you can find a transcript of this and every episode at reducingcrime.com slash podcast.
This episode is dedicated to the memory of Ron Schlieff. Be safe and best of luck.